Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Welcome, Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reviving Virtue. Today, we have a treat. We are joined by Professor Jeffrey Nicholas, a distinguished scholar from Providence College. His primary areas of study encompass Catholic social thought, ethics, political philosophy, and critical theory. He has significantly contributed to the academic discourse on Alastair McIntyre's views on virtues and rationality, as well as the Frankfurt School's critical theory, his book, Reason, Tradition, and the Good, McIntyre's tradition constituted reason and the Frankfurt School critical theory critically examines the limitations of reason's capacity to establish a just society in modernity. Drawing on McIntyre's Thomistic Aristotelianism, Nicholas advocates for a substantive reason constituted by and constitutive of tradition. This work serves as a compelling argument for the reevaluation and resolution of our approach to social life furthering the discourse on achieving a good and just society, which is exactly what we are looking to uncover and articulate in this podcast. So without further ado, welcome, Jeff. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to become a philosophy professor and got got here? Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, I am uh, originally from Kentucky, um, but I grew up just south of Cincinnati. So so these days I say I'm from Cincinnati, um, but I have my Kentucky roots there. And uh, grew up uh, uh, Catholic for the most part. Uh, went to uh, Catholic high school, um, and uh, then um, went on to grad school uh, first at Virginia Tech, and then at the University of Kentucky. Uh, and from there, taught at um, uh, Villanova uh, Mount Angel Seminary in Oregon, and then uh, now I'm at Providence College. Go Friars! Um, uh, let's see, what else can I tell you? I have two dogs that, um, tolerate me <laughs> <laughs> and a wife that, that tolerates me most of the time, uh, and three children. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. So I would love to, uh, get into your book. So quick background to our listeners here. I had read Alastair McIntyre's book, Reviving Virtue, and it uh, kind of split this world open to me that I never really thought about in the way that McIntyre has described it in his book. And I started looking for, so also I've mentioned in a previous podcast that I uh, have been under the impression from other people saying that, you know, McIntyre is associated with a conservative worldview and such. But when I read his book, I did not get that at all. And I went online and started searching for some other books that could possibly be looking into McIntyre's work and more from a left perspective. And also with Charles Taylor and I doing these search queries and Jeff's book popped up and I read the intro online and I said, oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And I can't believe this book has been written. <laughs> so I've invited you on this podcast because I read your book and we're going to go through each chapter, hopefully a bit in detail. But before we do that, I'm curious, like, why did you write this book? What was it that motivated you to write this book? I, I, I don't know if I can say anything now because you've got me blushing, but um, <laughs> um I, you know, I grew up in two worlds. That was the first thing. So one world is, you know, I grew up uh, from a poor working family, um, single mother. Um, you know, she's from Appalachia, working in the land, that sort of thing. But also this sort of academic world where I, I was accepted at a college preparatory school for high school. And, you know, there, there are questions that arise there. Uh, and then there are questions that arise, of course, with um, faith and reason as well. And so those questions always sort of not, not bothered me, but I wanted to give them some consideration and some thought about what it means to be a believer, both in terms of faith, but also in terms of reason, uh, and whether this life of philosophy, right, where we're told, you know, even in high school, I was told, you know, uh, the life of wisdom is, you know, what you should be seeking for. The unexamined life is not worth living, right? Uh, and I think maybe Catholics in general are told that. Maybe all religious people are told that in, in some sense. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. 
so that's that's the primary reason I think for from an emotional side, a personal side. But as I got into philosophy as a, a, a philosophy major, and, and I didn't actually, I had not planned on starting as philosophy major. I'd planned on starting as um, something to do with writing uh, because I wanted to be an author. And uh, all the books at the time said, you know, if you're going to be a writer, don't major in English because all the writers do that. You want to distinguish yourself. And I talked to my advisor, and, and my advisor was um, saying, you know, the philosophy majors do better on the GRE than English majors. So that's where you should go for writing. Okay. So there I am. I'm a, a philosophy major and, and pursued that. And, and it just made sense for us, for me to continue to pursue that, uh, for my, myself and my wife to continue to pursue that into grad school and onward. That led me to these kinds of questions about reason, particularly with the contest between the Enlightenment, which I was go gung ho for um, when I was younger, and uh, questions about why the Enlightenment had failed. And as someone who came from this sort of lower class background, right, and who had seen you know abuse on personal levels, um, you know, why had the Enlightenment failed? Why were we in this kind of situation? Um, and that led me again to question reason, but this time from a intellectual standpoint as well as from a personal standpoint. Um, and I, I talk about in the begin in the intro to the book, I talk about my, the influence of Voltaire, and he has a story, the story of the Brahmin. And the Brahmin's walking along with his friend, and the Brahmin's very unhappy, and he's questioning everything, and then he sees this woman who's just scrubbing her clothes, but she seems very happy. And he's, why is she happy? And I'm not, I think Voltaire recognizes that there's a prejudice in that question, right? Because, you know, why does the Brahmin think he should be happy and, and she should not? I think Voltaire recognizes that, but it is still an interesting question um, to think about what is it about the intellectual life that can cause misery and is that part of this whole reason why we haven't, you know, made better lives for ourselves? Um, so I, I hope that kind of answered your question. I, there's there's personal things there as well as intellectual issues going on, uh, pretty much the influence of Voltaire. Yeah, this resonates with me quite a bit. So I'm in my mid-40s, which I've announced on this podcast before, but like in my 20s, one of my early email addresses had the name Rational in it because I was like very much the enlightenment project had the answers, you know, mm -hmm. and I kind of came from uh, similar economic backgrounds, not, not from a typically wealthy family. And both my parents worked very hard, uh, physical labor. My dad was a landscaper, those types of things. You could see those things, but I was raised to think like, you know, if you follow this rational method, then things will get better. And then as I entered the world <laughs> and got to see how the world worked, I said, I don't know about this. And, and I think this is like a 20 year journey for me to sitting here right now in front of you, of me coming to grips with this whole idea of, of the enlightenment project and rationality. So I, so what you just said really resonates with me. And I, I actually want to jump in with the book a little bit and talk about rationality a little bit more, uh, cause I find it a little bit confusing if this conversation was happening three years ago and this, and this story is for my listeners here who I don't want you to get intimidated because three years ago, if the things we're going to talk about in rationality, the subjective rationality, substantive, all those, I, I couldn't understand that three years ago. And I'm still coming to terms with them. This is why I've invited you on. So let's let's jump into that. My next question I have for you is that uh, your book begins with a focus on the Frankfurt School, uh, specifically exploring the dialectic of enlightenment by Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. You delve into their critique of the enlightenment, uh, particularly emphasizing its perceived failures. Now, you've noted their focus on subjective rationality and its tendency to, quote, reduce truth to success, thereby depriving reason of substantive content. Furthermore, you point out that subjective rationality lacks the ability to evaluate ends, a notion that, from my understanding, appears to be a key underpinning in the narrative arc of your book. Could you guide us through your perspective on this chapter and elucidate why grasping the concept of subjective rationality is so integral to understanding your overall argument? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think it's important. For me, this is 20 years on from writing that book. Um, 
you know, I began it in, in 2002 and it was published in 2011, but so 12 years since then. And lots has changed in the world since then in some ways, but a lot has stayed the same or gotten worse. And we can think about the pandemic from multiple lenses, thinking about this subjective rationality, because we have a variety of viewpoints that all seem reasonable within themselves, right? But then somehow we end up with a million dead, right? Just in the U.S. Uh, and we can talk about any number of issues like that, whether it's the pandemic or it's how we respond to life-threatening climate change or how we respond to a number of things, right? And I'm, I'm not talking about the individual level because I think that's important to think about, but we can we can forgive individuals in a certain way when their emotions overcome them. That doesn't apply in the same way to society as a whole because society as a whole should be more considerate. Or at least I think I would like to propose that society as a whole should be more considerate. Um, and I know there's lots of questions we can talk about there in, in terms of that. But when we think about these things, the pandemic, for instance, we take a technological or subjective approach to that situation, right? And so subjective rationality here is about self-preservation and about trying to get to the ends regardless of what the means are. I think that's one way of thinking about it. In the book, I describe it as, as formal and logical. And there's nothing wrong with either of those, right? We need to do some formal things. We need to categorize things, right? You have a lot of books behind you. I'm sure they're organized in a, in a specific sort of way, right? Um, they are. And when you do music, you have to organize your music. Are you a blues player? What, what kind of mm -hmm. rift are you doing on your guitar, right? So we need that kind of reason. But when we use it to make all of our decisions, we forget to evaluate what it is that we're really trying to do, which is to live a better life. Um, and that goes back to Plato and Aristotle, of course. Um, but you can find it in every religious tradition, right? The goal is to find a better life. We might have different answers to that. Um, the Buddhist answer is certainly different than the Catholic answer. And the, I know we're going to talk about the Lakota later. The Lakota answer is going to be different from either of those answers, right? So, there's something about our reason that allows us to evaluate our ends and decide, are these the right ones for us to pursue, right? Now, when you were saying like Adorno and Horkheimer were criticizing the Enlightenment's version because theirs was very much focused on a rationality that looks at efficient end, like what's the most efficient way? And as long as it's efficient, then it's valid. This, But this completely erases essentially the human experience is kind of how I view it. Is this a correct interpretation? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way of, of, of stating that it. It, it does eliminate the human position, right? And I think that's yeah. a lot of the critiques that we see from the Frankfurt School. When we talk about the Frankfurt School, we're talking about Adorno and Horkheimer. We're talking about Herbert Marcuse, uh, Walter Benjamin, all right? That's the first generation. And then we have a second generation identified with Jürgen Habermas, and then third generation, and, and so forth. So I in the book, I talk about specifically... Uh, Adorno, Horkheimer, a little bit of Marcuse, and then um, Habermas. I pay attention mostly to the first generation and then the, the titular hair there. But I, what we see in those critiques is this idea that what we've done is we've made ourselves less human, right? And I mm -hmm. think there's a little bit of that we see in the, in the description of, of how they think about the way technology we use technology and that it dehumanizes us in many ways. Marcuse's book, One Dimensional Man, is, is in many ways accessible, at least the introduction is, on this issue and really addresses it quite clearly. Yeah, so the, the idea of it not being like it's uh, the technological side of it and removing our humanness from it. Uh, the Frankfurt School, they were saying that this was an intentional project, right? Because mm. what we this is replacing uh, what religion used to used to provide in a way. Uh, and I think I want to get to that later, but I want to <laughs> stick to my script a little bit because you mentioned Habermas because that's what you went to in your next chapter. And I have Hab Habermas's book over over here in my to read pile. And I haven't uh, uh, I haven't read his most famous book, uh, 
We have the theory of communicative rationality. Correct. The, there's two. There's two volumes. Right? Two volumes of it. Uh, yeah, and you go over both of them in the book. And I do know a lot of the other people I read in the books behind me, they are critical of Habermas and you're critical of him as well. And this, I think, will help us understand a little bit more of why people maybe are critical of his version of rationality and why it's maybe not correct for what we need today. And you also bring in Charles Taylor, who I credit him putting me on this path because I read his book about two years ago of Sources of the Self and it completely, Mm -hmm. I will just say it just destroyed me. It tore me down. I was like, oh my God. I've never really understood how we went from point A to point B, pre-enlightenment to here. And, you know, and I was a musician and I spent 25 years traveling the world and playing for people, recording on records. And I had the whole concept of what he essentially deconstructed of the romantic ideal of the artist, right? And he Put the, he pulled it apart in such a way. I was like, oh my God, he he's that's who I am and that's how I view the world. And it, it tore me down. And I think in a good way, it just showed me that I was, I had a very specific conception of reality that I thought, and I was universalizing that, you know, mm. and thinking that people who don't conform to this reality that I feel as a, a person who's in tune with the emotions and stuff. Anyways, I'm getting on a little bit of a tangent, but I'm sharing this because you talk about him in this chapter with Habermas. In this chapter, he has the notion of rationality spheres, which there's three of them, right? You have the scientific, the legal moral, and then the aesthetic. I want to know, like, why is Habermas central to this story? And can you also comment on Charles Taylor? Because you have a whole, the whole second half of that chapter is on Taylor and Habermas and like their back and forth and why they disagree. And I'm really interested in that aspect as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think Habermas is, was important for the project because he's a representative of liberalism that makes a solid defense of the liberal project by responding to Max Weber, who really came up with these three spheres, right? The aesthetic, the moral, legal, and the um, the technological or scientific. There are others that, that one could look at. John Rawls would be the most obvious for the Americans and, and uh, English, Habermas would be on the continent uh, of Europe. Both giants in the field at the time and even still, I think. Um, the reason to look at Habermas and not Rawls is that Habermas has a detailed account of reason that Rawls does not. So for the project, as I set it out, we're going to think about what the limitations of what I call subjective rationality are, and think about what the solution to that is. Habermas is where we would go to. And I think there are many things where Habermas is still important and he's still living. He contributes to the public intellectual dialogue on the continent, right? So you can see him publishing in widely read magazines and newspapers about events with you know, the breakup of the EU or whatever it might be. Uh, mm-hmm. EU hasn't broken up, but with, you know, Brexit. Uh, so so he has a, a, an important voice there uh, that he shares. And I think that's a, a tradition in continental Europe that we don't have in the United States, but since Dewey particularly, I, I know you spent some time on Dewey, yeah. um, and something that we should get back. I mean, we have Noam Chomsky, who, uh, God love him, is, is still trying to contribute something, but I think is in his 90s. Uh, Habermas must be in his 90s as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chomsky's actually at the college I work at here, University okay. of Arizona. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know him well then. Um, and he, well, I know, I know him you, of his work. I haven't met him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he's really the only one that we, that I can think of in us that does that sort of thing. Whereas Habermas might be a leader in, in continental Europe, but, but there are other people over there that do the same thing. So that's one reason to think about Habermas both then and today. Even, eventually, I think that Habermas's answer does not work because he repeats the same enlightenment rationality that the Frankfurt School criticizes. And if you don't mind, I just want to say a little bit about that. So the, the way I explain to my students what the criticism is, is to really focus on that chapter in the Dialectic of Enlightenment by Adorno and Horkheimer, um, where they go into the discussion of the Odyssey and Odysseus crossing the sea and the sirens are there, right? And so you can imagine, you know, this picture, there's this, this man coming home victorious 
from this battlefield and he thinks he can do everything, right? And, but he knows that there's this trap up here. These sirens with their beautiful music will drive people crazy and they'll jump off the boat and they'll swim over and they'll lose their lives. So he wants to he wants to hear the music, but he doesn't want to lose his life, right? Nobody wants to do that, but we want to hear the beautiful music. And there's something there I think interesting that that we could pursue in a different podcast, maybe about the lore of music and art and that sort of thing. And you could probably say a lot about that yourself, about how music can, like giving your life to music is how you actually live, right? But that's not what Odysseus wants to do. He wants to hear the music, but not give up his life. So he has his sailors tie him to the mast of the boat so he cannot get away. And the sailors plug their ears with this wax so they cannot hear the sirens. So Odysseus can hear the sirens. He can hear this beautiful music, but he cannot lose himself to it. And his sailors right, cannot hear the music, so they're not even entranced by it. And that's the kind of rationality that we're talking about in the Enlightenment. What we had, we had this beautiful idea. I mean, it's a fascinating idea, right? That we can use our rationality to design society so that we can be free and experience wonderful things. And what we ended up with was this sort of dirty London during the industrial age, right? And we end up with World War One and World War Two, um, and now we have this climate collapse, right? So. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the subjective rationality that I'm talking about that we want to criticize and we want to come up with some kind of reason that allows us to evaluate ends. And Habermas does he provide an answer? No, because he just repeats the the um, the Kantian alternative that we have this universal rule that we follow in any situation that puts us in this sort of okay. Does this fit in the category? Yes, then we can do it. No, then we can't. But then the Hegel says in his criticism of Kant, it's an empty category. It's an empty rule, right? Right. Um, yep. So a way to think about that are rules that we have in human resources. We know what the rules are, and we know that no matter how we try to apply them, they're not really going to serve us in the end. Mm-hmm. And we can think of other sort of you know rules like that where the rule makes sense in some ways. But when we try to apply it to every situation, it fails us, right? It seems, so this like instrumental reason, can you call it that in a way? This, it, it serves an end though for a specific group, which is the group that's in power, right? Because uh, they're able to use this form that they can then apply to like, this is how things should be and this is how they ought to be. And they don't really adjudicate what's the substance within that form, right? As long as the form's going, you're not allowed to say, hey, you know, we want this world over here. Like we have this world here with Canada on fire. My mom's covered in smoke, you know, uh, because she's out in Long Island. And that's a direct result from the form that has been operating the global system for the last 150 years. This is an output from that. Right. We're not allowed to say we want the world over here where we have a clean world and we live emancipated from these needs that we have to work for in order to create wealth for a certain class of people. Like we want to do that world over here. And we're saying, you're not allowed to say that because this is the form. And right. the form says it has to be like, well, that, well, that's very convenient <laughs> <laughs> for, for the people who it, it helps, right? If you're the owning class, essentially of all the wealth in the world, then this form works for you. And I think this is why I came to your book and also what I've been coming through in my own life, which is like, oh, this this idea of this, the Kantian, like Kant's form, you know, the substance doesn't matter. And it's like, well, the substance does matter because that's that's us. That's who we are. And that's what's right. happening in our lives. Like, how can you say we're not allowed to make a judgment on that? And you say things, well, that's a normative claim. Well, I think it's a normative claim to have a form that rules all. Like, that's a normative right. claim. But we're not allowed to say that this and this is these is like this is something I've learned as I've come out of the music world and gotten to academia a bit and got my grad degree. And I learned how to read complicated texts. And I start going, wait a second. Wait, this is what we've been told. And this is we have this life because a couple people uh, a couple hundred years ago decided to create this whole system that we we call the Enlightenment and we call reason, and we've put it on this pedestal, and that it's this amazing technology, which is what it is. It's a technology. Uh, but we're not allowed to question this technology. Like, right. uh, sounds like religion, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right. In a way. 
And and this is why the whole idea of adjudicating ends, like we should be allowed to say this is the world we want and the world we have now we don't like. So we want to change it. But this seems to be this in my this is why I'm starting the podcast, because my essential understanding of it now and your book helped me clarify a lot of these confusions is that we have these rules that are in place where we're not allowed to question it. To question it is, a, is, is like a, it's a foul. Like that's not allowed. These questions aren't allowed in this framework. Uh, and if you want to question those things, then you're just going to be, you're not part of the game anymore. Like you're not, you're not, you're no longer part of the discussion. And uh, the virtues, which we're going to get to in this other type of thing is to say, we have a life we want to live. And there's, of course, in this pluralistic society, this is kind of the difficulty is that there's a lot of different world views and notions of the good, but in a society and what we've discussed in the previous podcast so far, the first seven episodes uh, is the uh, from John Dewey's The Public and Its Problems is his whole idea is that the public is supposed to come to an agreement on these things and understand the responsibility of being a member of a public. And there is no real individual. They cannot be an individual because we are all constituted in the public, you know? Right. Uh, so there was a little bit of an aside by me, but I think it's, it's central to this idea of, and this confusion that a lot of people have. I mean, I, I believe most people in, in the world right now, at least in the United States are very confused. It's very confusing. And I've been very confused and it's only since I've come into these books that I've been reading and these topics that you wrote about, and you brought them all together, which is, I love your book. I really think everyone should read your book. Thank you. Is that you really laid out this idea of the specific type of rationality. Because if you say to someone on the street, like rationality is bad, they're going to think you're crazy because that's how we're grown up. We're taught from children all the way up to adulthood till the end of our lives that rationality is what guides us. This is like the progress with, a, you know, we're always progressing because of rationality, but we can see we're progressing this, I, I don't think we can objectively say in a good way that the world is in a great place right now. Uh, like you just, this is how we started our podcast. You mentioned that. And that's a very specific form of rationality. And there's another way of looking at it. I'm not sure if this will lead into it, but we haven't talked yet about Charles Taylor and how he criticizes Habermas. Does he get into this concept? Yeah. So I, I, I think actually your comments were not a tangent. I think they're exactly what Taylor says, right? That okay. The, the criticism that Taylor makes of Habermas is the same one that Hegel makes of Kant, which is we have these ways that we want to live, but you're saying they're irrational and so we can't live them, right? What gives you the right to tell us that? It's not reason because you've already gotten, right? We have a different kind of reason over here that says that we are able to talk that. John Rawls is very clear about that in his books, particularly Political Liberalism, liberalism where he says, Look, if you're not willing to listen to others, that's unrational, and we're not going to let you participate in the debate. Right. Right. And so Taylor's argument is much more sophisticated against Habermas about how Habermas's argument and theory of reason is excluding some people from the discussion. So if we wanted to talk today about climate change and about how we might go about fixing that situation, there are various Native American tribes, right, and various indigenous people across the world who would say, we have to listen to how nature talks to us. And that will appear irrational to the European mind, right? And so mm -hmm. since it is irrational, right, and this is the whole thesis of discovery, right, that the Europeans found this continent, there were irrational people on there, so we can take it over for ourselves because that's, that's our right by God, right? It's the same sort of argument being repeated, just in different words. That's irrational. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to exclude that kind of conversation. We don't want to have that. And so then we get stuck with, you know, these wildfires or whatever it might be. Who knows what the next hurricane is going to look like? So it's that exclusionary principle that Taylor points out and says, no, we have to have this more inclusive idea of reason that allows us to evaluate what our ends actually are. Exactly. That's that's perfect. Taylor uses this phrase, like if we think of Native Americans and their idea of like, we have to listen to nature and nature will tell us. This is kind of getting back to his idea of how rationalism disembedded us from mm -hmm. society and also got rid of the mystical, the mysticism. I believe he calls it the mystical self or a uh, but he talks about this and how we lost this mysticism, but that mysticism is actually important 
And we, because now we silence an entire section of our reality or our life world, right? We just, we silence it off because we call it irrational just because it doesn't fit within this frame. Yeah. Awesome. This is great. I want to move on to the next section here. We're we're doing good on time here. I'm just checking. All right. So you move it, the next part of your book, you move into McIntyre and his tradition constituted reason, which is where I really want to talk about here, which I found to be the most engaging chapter. It's an amazing chapter. I'd like to spend some more time in this chapter. Can you provide some context as to why McIntyre is central to not only to this chapter and, and the book, but more broadly to his conception of articulating virtues for our modern time? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's an important question. And and when I went into grad school, I think people expected me because I was Catholic to just be drawn to McIntyre. And I wasn't at first. It took a while for me to get to that point. And it's it's because I read things outside of After Virtue. So his big book is this After Virtue, which was published in 1981 and you know has made him world famous. Um where he really starts to develop the idea of this reason of traditions. But it really has roots in his discussions with Peter Winch, who was a sociologist in the 1970s, in these debates about whether non-European cultures are rational, right? Mm-hmm. Are they reasonable? And so there's a back and forth between Winch and, and McIntyre that I started to be drawn into that had this discussion about well, what if we think about reason as something that is broader than this one sort of limited concept, right? This one just purely efficiency that we can talk about. And uh, the the debates between, uh, the debates over this issue are primarily about the Azandi, who are a, a group of people in northern Africa, just be- below what I think is present-day Suzanne, and their practice of witchcraft. Could witchcraft be a reasonable practice? And most people are in the that field are saying no. And McIntyre wants to come and say, we have to rethink how we're looking at what's going on here and how it is reasonable. And that really gave me the idea that, to think about all the personal questions that I had, right? In terms of my religion and whether you can be, re- you know, people are always making fun of us for um, trying to be reasonable and also being, you know, faithful at the same time. Um, but also for this question that Fort Kaiman and Adorno are, are asking about the sources of reason, because what's important that we find in After Virtue, and more particularly in um, the follow-up to that book by McIntyre, Whose Justice, Which Rationality, is that traditions have their own standards of reason. Mm-hmm. So that we use those standards of reasons of reason to evaluate the good in the tradition, as well as evaluate the standards of reason, right? Mm-hmm. And that allows us to escape from this one point of view and say, wait a minute, there are different rationalities out there. Mm-hmm. And we can think about those critically, and we can think about our own critically, and begin to find different ways of living in the world that might be better or worse and allow us to make those kinds of comparisons that are necessary for making us more human. So I hear a little bit of pragmatism in that uh, because of the idea that like Dewey and also James and Richard Rorty, you know, he had this whole idea that it doesn't matter what the truth is. What matters is if, is if it works for us, you know, and uh, and that's scary for a lot of people. And you actually at the very last chapter of your book, you talk about relativism and that's the common complaint with this idea. Now, I actually want to hear, do you think that the that pragmatism is, is related in a way to this McIntyre's view of, of this rationality that he views of tradition-constituted reason? I, I think there is some, my thought has changed over the years. I do think that there is a pragmatic element in there. Okay. But if you really want a great answer to that, there is a book in French that is being translated into English. Uh, the French is Verité J. McIntyre. Uh, the English will be Truth in McIntyre, according to McIntyre. By his last name is Rouard, R-O-U-A-R-D. And he goes into this discussion where it's not just a pragmatic element. There is still this search for the sort of Platonic Aristotelian adequation to the thing itself, right? Mm-hmm. That lies behind it. 
but we take that notion and we understand it through the lens of tradition. And I mm. think the way that uh, Ruard, I'm probably mispronouncing his name because it's French, but the way that he he articulates that is so clear and so convincing that I really changed my whole view about how much pragmatism there is in this discussion. And I, I, I haven't given up the pragmatism. I think there still has to be an element of that because at a certain point, uh, McIntyre says our tradition has to allow us to live in the world, right? right. And yeah. so if, we, if we're losing a million people from COVID or whatever it is, then our, our reason has failed in some way, right? So there is a pragmatic element in there, but it's not the, um, it's not the centerpiece that I thought it was when I wrote chapter five of, of Reason, Tradition, and the Good. So, well, let's, I want to talk a little bit more about the tradition-constituted reason. How could you describe this for, let's say, the average person? You know, like, you know, if you were to say, well, I think we should have a world that is tradition-constituted reason rather than this instrumental reason that we have from, like, what would that, what does that entail? How do we make that shift? Is this something that we need to wholesale, just tear down and put up a new system tomorrow? Or is this something that could evolve over time? Well... <laughs> <laughs> My students know I'm a little pessimistic about evolving over time, given the amount of climate change that we have to suffer. And given time, yes, it could evolve. Mm -hmm. And I think McIntyre is good in his last book, Ethics in the Conflicts of Modernity, talking about how Thomas, Thomas Aquinas was close to this answer, and then it fell apart, not because of Thomas's answer, but because we suddenly had this rise of capitalism, mercantilism, because of all mm -hmm. the changes in the world, right? The discovery yeah. of different continents and the new smelting materials so that gold was available to trade and all those sorts of things. So given time, yes, it could happen. So to think about this, it's, it's good to think about games. For example, chess, go, and checkers. Mm -hmm. They're all on a board, slightly different boards, slightly different pieces, Mm -hmm. They play by their own rules. You can't take the go pieces and just put them on a chess board, mm -hmm. right? And you can't take the chess pieces and put them on a go board. And if you don't know what a go, go board is, it's, it's basically just lines crossing each other. And you have mm -hmm. little white and black stones. And the goal is to surround the other person's stones with your color of stones. I'm terrible at the game because I have aphantasia, mm -hmm. which means I can't see pictures. So if I say purple triangle, you can see a purple triangle and I can't. Uh, and that's okay. necessary for playing the game Go because you have to see the circle that you're building. Huh. Um, but the the point that I'm bringing up is that they have different rationalities. And yet we think they're both rational. We don't exclude either one of them. And either one of them could be quite good for learning strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Expand that a little bit. How do we think about something like property, right? There is a tradition in Europe extending from Hobbes and Locke about what property is. And it's interesting because if you look at the writing of Pope Leo XIII, who begins this whole other tradition of Catholic social thought, he says he's using Thomas Aquinas's theory of property, but he's not. He's using Lockean theory. And that yeah. tells us a contradiction in the document itself and how we proceed. So there's a way to think about how these two traditions might define property differently and each one of them be rational in them in their own ways. And then there's a conflict when we try to put them together that can't just be resolved. So there are these two different traditions with two different understandings of what property are and not just two different understandings about prop what property are, but two different ways of, of reasoning about property so that the Lockean says it is rational to own a piece of property and keep all of its goods for myself and not share. And the Thomist says it is good to own a piece of property in order to share right. with others. Uh, right. So that's two different kinds of reason. Yep. Right. And they, they conflict if you put them together. So they're not the same. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, then we can get into the pragmatism where Locke's theory, which is accepted because it's the basis of capitalism, has led us to, I'm sorry to all the viewers who don't, you know, want to buy into the Marxism, I apologize for that, but try to consider this without Marxism. 
that that Locke's theory has led us to this situation where climate change is a problem. Yep. So you can look at someone in, I, this is actually a case that we talked about in a class, someone in California, when they're going through their drought and the, the state says, we have to limit how much water you use to for your lawn. And the person says, no, it's my lawn, my property. I can use as much water as I want. Right. That's where the that's where some of the pragmatism might come in. There might be other alternatives to the Thomistic account that work. The Lakota do not have an account of property in the same way. Um, well, let's go to that real quick because I know we're, we're running up on time and I didn't want, this is important too because, uh, and quickly for my listeners, like my current position at the University of Arizona, I, I help, uh, I work in the College of Education and they focus on the tribes here in, in Southern Arizona. And I work with the researchers at the college and there's a couple of researchers there doing really amazing cutting edge work. They work with the epistemological understandings of Native Americans and their ways of knowing what constitutes knowledge for them. It's a reason in its own, right? What we we're just talking about. But then when you put it up against the enlightenment reason, there's a major conflict. And this is what I really appreciated in your book is that you lay this out in one of the chapters. What I have here prepared for my question is, so I found your analysis of the Lakota people, which are one of the three tribes that make up the Sioux nation, and then the Azandi people from, you were saying, Northern Africa. Uh, it was very compelling. And you beautifully explicate how their lived experiences, their life world, and what constitutes knowledge creation and truth claims are crucial to understanding when critiquing our Western conceptions of truth rationality and epistemological foundations that emerge from the enlightenment and that inform our world today. Could you delve deeper into the into this analysis and discuss, and discuss how this non-Western perspective can enrich our understandings and also help us critique enlightenment? <laughs> yeah, and I, I appreciate that question. I, I've done a little bit more research on that, so some of my answer will come from that, that more yeah. research, which uh, your readers can look at in chapter eight of my book, Love and Politics. The Lakota have this view where owning the earth would be like owning one's mother. It's unreasonable, right? So they have an understanding of property in the sense of I own my clothes or my TP or whatever it might be. But the idea of owning land, which Marx would call a means of production, that doesn't make sense to them because it has its own personality, own identity, right? It is filled with what the Lakota would call Wakan. The, the, the land is Wakan. It's sacred. Mm -hmm. And that's quite different from the way that we traditionally think about it from a European context. So it can enrich our understanding of what it is that we're dealing with when we're talking about different aspects of nature, of land, uh, Etc. And I'm not even sure that our word, our, the English word nature, would translate into the Lakota understanding of what we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that I want to explore a little bit more. Uh, I was challenged on that recently, and it, I think it's a good challenge to, to think about that. But the way that they conceive of how nature takes care of itself and takes care of humans is very interesting. And can help us to get through some of the conflicts that we have over the issues that have led to climate change. So more recently, I've read about the way that they understand the bison speaking mm. to them, right? And there's this, there's a quote from one of the Lakota who's living, I think, in South Dakota. And he says, they're reasonable, you, they just don't speak our language. But that doesn't mean that they're irrational. And of course... In our tradition of European philosophy, we have this idea that human beings are so distinct and so different from the non-human world that there can't be any rationality among them. And McIntyre criticizes this, as does Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. McIntyre criticizes this in his book, Dependent Rational Animals, yeah. which is a great, great book, uh, easy access to McIntyre. But we don't really see that operationalized, to use that term, in European philosophy in any way, not even in Aristotle. But we do see it in this sort of Lakota and other native perspectives, where we can think about how we listen to and what they say to us. Unfortunately, Vine Deloria Jr. says, and he has passed away, he was, he was a, uh, I believe he was a Lakota scholar, says, we've lost our ability to speak with animals in the natural world. We have to rediscover those ways so that we can communicate 
in the ways that are necessary. I know this seems kind of esoteric probably to your to your listeners, right? Because we're talking about something that's very different from the European way of thinking about nature and animals. I've made some connections before between Aristotle's view and the Lakota view. There's another woman, Mary Midgley, who passed away three or four years ago. And she has a similar sort of argument in her book, Beast and Man, which is a fantastic book, where she talks about this Aristotelian tradition that sees animals as not rational in the same way that we are, but at least rational and able to choose ends, right? Mm -hmm. That can enrich the way that we think about nature and think about what we're doing with technology and climate change and all those sorts of things that we're struggling with today. I understand why you say it might be very esoteric. It's critical because you're naming and explaining how there was other ways of being in the world. And our way of being has essentially erased that. And also like when you use the word operationalizing, like your way of how we can uh, say an animal and how they view the world and, and live in it. We don't even allow that to exist within our framework, which is critical. This is what I believe your book is about too. You like, we have this rational way of making sense of the world, but that is very efficient. But with efficiency, there's a cost. And that cost is the the, the real, the vibrancy of, and the complexity and the wonder of the world. I, I like to say like the wonder and the awe just gets uh, cut off. You know, it's not allowed. And that mysticism, I believe, like the mystical universe, the mystical world that Taylor talks about of how that is erased through the enlightenment project and that's lost. And that loss is a really big cost to society. So I think it's really critical. I mean, my own perspective, since I've started working in the College of Education at the University of Arizona, it's been about a year, and I'm reading the research of, of our researchers on how they teach, essentially how they teach their young and how mm -hmm. this knowledge is, is, is transmitted and also their conceptions of truth. I honestly never really gave it much thought. And now that I do, you, you you look at the world differently and you look at processes that happen and you go, you know, that doesn't have to happen that way, but we're taught that it should. And I started this podcast with Dewey and Dewey, of course, is very famous for his education and his whole idea. Uh, and I, I think you mentioned it in your book is that education is a central point and where you can kind of get this sort of new thinking embedded within our society. Right. Uh, yeah, because I know we're right up on time and I want to respect your time. So I, if we can close out with the last question, this, this conversation has been fantastic. You've helped me solidify a lot of my thoughts here on rationality. And I'm hoping our listeners have gained some insight here as well. I mean, even really, this has been really great, Jeff. And my last question for the episode is, I want to ensure we touch on the conclusion of your book. Could you explain the importance of substantive reason in your project and elaborate on the role of education? There it is, right? <laughs> in fostering understanding, <laughs> criticism, and change within one's traditions. Uh, additionally, could you suggest some practical actions that individuals can take today to help articulate a new set of moral narratives for our time? Yeah, I think the last question is the easiest to answer, and that is to learn an indigenous language. Yeah. Okay. Um, because it it introduces us to a different worldview. I've attempted to learn some Lakota. I haven't really studied it like I would have, you know, Latin, and that's just for the excuse that I don't have the time to to do it. the The point of substantive reason, the reason I call it substantive, is because it has content in it. By which I mean it has ideas about what's good. It has ideas about it has standards of reasons in it by which we're able to make judgments about our goals. Right. So. The importance of that is that if we want to actually be free, by which I mean direct our lives according to our desires, we have to be able to evaluate where those desires are taking us, right? Mm -hmm. And so we really want a lot of technology in our lives. And now we've got this chat GPT and the ability to reproduce images of people on uh, a video and so now we've got this strike in Hollywood where writers are saying, we don't want our jobs to be lost to chat GPT. And we've got uh, actors now saying, we don't want our images to be used and replaced you know, for us in movies. And of course, there are much more difficult questions that we can address, that we need to address about that. Do we want AI? We can't ask those questions with the subjective instrumental reason, we have to have something that allows us to aim for a better life for ourselves. And we're going to conflict over what those better lives are, 
But if we reduce our conflict to utility, none of us are going to win. That's why we have to have the real tough in, in dialogue with the questions about what's really good. Uh, and I think Dewey is a good way to think about how that dialogue goes. Another person to think about how that dialogue goes is Paulo Freire. Uh, mm -hmm. And it has to, has to be much more communicative, right? So something like what we're talking about right now and having this podcast, you know, where we can really investigate these kinds of concepts, whereas... You know, in a traditional educational setting, I've got 50 minutes to give a lecture and students are supposed to regurgitate that. No one's learning anything that way, and I don't run my classes that way. But we have to be able to have the time to have the conversations and the space to have that conversation where we feel safe if we say something. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? The Buffalo said, people are going to laugh at me if I say that, right? Yeah. Um, so I have to have a safe space where I can have that kind of conversation and the education that goes with it. So I think it's important for us to learn those indigenous languages uh, and to really kind of struggle with that or to get involved in an activist group that has an identity that is something like No Dapple, the No to the Dakota Access Pipeline, because you're going to get involved in a tradition there that has these standards of reason by which they're judging what their actions are. Uh, McIntyre says that the Black Lives Movement has a similar sort of function in his ethics and conflicts and modernity. But getting involved in that, the, the point of that is not to be radical, but to be involved in a conversation where we can have the discussion about what's really important and how we want to direct our lives. Well, thank you, Jeff. This has been fantastic. I love the idea of giving this space so we can have these conversations. I hope that we can have you on again. Maybe we can do that music focused one. Oh, that would uh, be fun. Yeah. It's definitely something that I weave into every episode, right? The ideas of music. It's another form of communication. So thank you again. And, uh, and our listeners are very lucky to have you as our first guest here. So thank you. You're too kind, but thank you very much. You bet. Okay. I want to thank everyone for making it to the end of episode eight of Reviving Virtue. I really hope you enjoyed this discussion with Jeff Nicholas, as I did. And I'd be sure to check out his books, Reason, Tradition, and the Good, McIntyre's Tradition Constituted Reason, and Frankfurt School's Critical Theory, and his newest book, Love and Politics, Persistent Human Desires as a Foundation for Liberation. Next week, we continue this new phase of the podcast, and we'll have on Mark Paul. He's an economist and assistant professor of economics at Rutgers, and we will be discussing his new book on the show. So until then, let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden, fostering growth of shared symbols, meanings, virtues, and moral narratives that resonate with our time and aspirations. I'm trying to promote the YouTube portions of this podcast over on YouTube. And if you're watching on YouTube, you may notice I'm wearing a different shirt because I recorded this outro a few days later. So you can see all the excitement on YouTube. I would really like it if you go over there and subscribe and give me a like. Maybe we can get this algorithm to start pushing some of these episodes into other people's feeds. And if you are, uh, would like a transcript of this, those are available on my new Patreon for the $3 a month Moral Explorer tier. And if you upgrade to the $5 a month Ethical Pioneer tier, you can listen to the podcast early and receive a private RSS feed, which you can subscribe to through any of your podcasting apps. You do not have to listen to them on Patreon. I usually finish these a few days ahead of time and some of them a few weeks ahead of time. So you'll have early access to these episodes. And I really appreciate your support. Thank you and we'll see you next week. Be well.